0: All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Tom Bonnier. Tom is a really noted political strategist. Those of you who are already at the politics know who he is. He's the CEO of Target Smart, which is sort of the top democratic political data and data services firm. Um, and I wanted to have him on. Uh, Tom, first of all, thank, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So here's actually how this started, which was, you know, I was doing that fucking around with the map to see you know, all the different permutations. And, and you know worked my way into a 269-269 tie, and then asked the question of, okay, let's say that this did somehow happen. It goes to the House. We've got the entire House up for election this year as well. Um, where is that gonna land? And if you were Biden or Trump, should you be working on the House races in anticipation of this or not? And so that was kind of the original uh, Genesis of, of, of asking you to come on the show. I know this is super unlikely, but have you thought about this at all?
1: I, I have, I, I appreciate you bringing it up though. It's sort of like the thing of nightmares for me because the last thing we need is like an even more closely contested election after the last one, but it's possible and we can go down this path if you want, cause it's, it does get a little bit weirder than I think people might even imagine. Uh, in terms of, you know, what happens next.
0: Weird is good, man. Keep going. You know,
1: it it, it won't surprise people to hear that currently um, Republicans hold a majority of the uh, House delegations, right? If you look at the states and you divide out every state by who holds a majority of the seats in that state, given just the nature of population distribution and all these things, right, this is suddenly more like a Senate map in a way that you have to have more Democratic states. And we know... There generally aren't, um, so that becomes a problem for the Democrats. But to your point, when you look at the actual map and you look at where there are potentially competitive house races, it gets a little bit more interesting mm-hmm. because you have a couple states that are at like a 50, 50. Um, we've Minnesota is one of them, um, North Carolina is the other, and so you know, for de- for Democrats to get to twenty four states, it's pretty easy. I I I I think they'll end up there after this election. It's the question is 25, twenty five, twenty six becomes tricky, right? By my math, Arizona is the next best shot for Democrats, and that actually becomes a real opportunity. Uh, and to your point, I think something that you will see resources put in there anyhow, just because of the Democratic opportunities to take back control of the House, which are also very right. real.
0: And, and they got to win Arizona. And I would imagine in that case, you know, the resources are going in because Biden will put everything he has into Arizona anyway.
1: Right? That's right. There's, so you have a you have obviously incredibly competitive state from a presidential perspective. You have what will almost certainly be a very competitive U.S. Senate race, a weird US Senate race that'll be a, you know, three-way for now.
0: How, how would you just if you had to call it today,
1: how would you predict that one? The Senate race? Yeah. Um, I hate making predictions, which is not <laughs> fun. I know. <laughs> it's there's there's not a lot of benefit to it. I do think that Democrats have a, a a good shot at picking that up. I think in the end if I had to bet, I would say that we end up Picking that one up, but again, it's weird. You have an incumbent, former Democrat, um, now independent, um, who is running. Maybe she, maybe she will drop out at some point, but I, I doubt it. Um, you've got the Republican candidate who lost the governor's race um, by a wider margin than a lot of people thought, um, and then you've got a Democratic uh, incumbent member of Congress uh, running. So it's it, it's an interesting field. Um, and then you go down the House, Democrats only hold three of the nine seats in in Arizona right now, um, which was a little bit of a surprise. You know, to the extent that Democrats did pretty well their last su- cycle or pretty well from a national perspective, they lost two close ones. So they'd have to pick up both of those seats. It's the, I believe it's the first district and then the sixth district in Arizona. They'd have to pick up both. That would give them a majority in Arizona. That would give them a majority of the delegations if they can push uh, Minnesota and North Carolina uh, in twenty-five states. I don't know what happens, to be honest, if there's then a tie in the house. Well and,
0: and <laughs> Maybe then you do no I don't know. But then just to I mean the the in a way this is all unlikely. On the other hand, whatever's unlikely seems to be what happens these days. So who the fuck yes. knows? Um, okay so let's say that it's a two sixty nine, two sixty nine tie. The Democrats do pick up the House seats um they can sort of or they can they can vote for biden as president but the senate is right now 5149 but with manchin retiring we know it's at least going to be the best best for the democrats 50-50 and then there's another what 7-8 competitive races on top of that so let's say the senate ends up being 5347 um you know just given that the democratic sort of institutions and processes these days no longer seem to be sacrosanct would they just refuse to confirm it and certify it? Like I don't even know what would happen.
1: Yeah, you know, I've I've heard a few theories on this, and obviously these things can be dangerous. But to your point, um, you have to consider everything, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, right. Uh, we're we're sort of uh, beyond the pale at the moment, and um, the theory that I heard yesterday, and this was based on the special election from what last week. Uh, in New York with where Tom Swasey won, people were noting, uh, that the speaker has not seated him yet. Uh, and that that was about, they wanted to be able to, uh, you know, finally succeed in their impeachment, uh, proceedings, uh, for Mayorkas, uh, which they did. Um, but they're still putting it off. He said that he'll do it by tomorrow, but I guess there are some people questioning, whether or not that will happen, which led some people to believe that well, the new house is supposed to be sworn in, I believe, on January 3rd. But some people are making the argument, well, there's nothing that will actually compel the speaker to do that, because it's the speaker from the previous session who has which who might who be Johnson. Might not, who knows? Right. Yeah, right. Um, so you know, there's some theory that what Republicans could do is actually fail to swear in the new Congress, especially if Democrats do take control of the House, they do take control of a majority or at least 25 state delegations, that they could just kind of leave their existing uh, majority in place long enough to get to the January 6th vote certification and then hijinks would ensue. so,
0: So then it goes to the Supreme Court of which on one hand, it's a clear Republican majority with a third of the justices appointed by Trump. On the other hand, they're in there for life and their legacy has to matter to them to a certain extent, right? Um, you know, when you get to these points of like, is it your party loyalty versus your sort of legacy and sort of just upholding the basic norms of democracy, do you think then you can count on, you know, a Kavanaugh or a Gorsuch or someone like that to be a little more rational, or do you just think if it if the Republicans manage to hold it through the six and put Trump back in, if there's a 269 tie, the court just goes along with it?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't bet my life on either outcome, but I do that the thought process that you just laid out in terms of the fact that these individuals on the court are there for life, they no longer need Donald Trump. Uh, and in fact, there's some argument to be made that his existence in the executive branch actually becomes problematic for them. Um, uh, they are incentivized to be more in favor of the establishment. So <laughs> the hope that I hold out in my heart is that that's what would win out. I think there's a reasonable argument for that. They are, when you look at these justices, true conservatives, uh, uh, but, you know, what does that mean these days? <laughs> Donald Trump is certainly not a true conservative. So at some point do they look at this and say this is our opportunity maybe to set things on a more establishment footing and, and end this? I would hope so, but I, I, I wouldn't bet on it at this moment.
0: All right, so moving a little more towards reality, the, the Michigan primary was yesterday. And so I'm on a endless text chain with a bunch of other political hacks that you know, uh, Howard Wolfson, Josh Isay, Michael Asher, Jeff Pollock. And we were debating this morning whether or not the Obama-Michigan primary results in 12 in terms of the undecideds was fairly similar to what happened yesterday or if yesterday was much worse. And literally different people on the text chain had different data points to mm. dispute each other's arguments.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm of the school of thought that, Um, The uncommitted vote that we saw, which was about 13%, now they're still counting votes, but it's more than 95% of the votes are in, so it won't change uh, more than a a fraction of a percent or so. Um, Whereas in 2012, it was 10.6%. So you're seeing about a two-point increase, which I think we're seeing both sides of this, right? Those who are pushing the uncommitted vote as a campaign we're declaring victory because they said look all we just wanted to get 10,000 votes and we got over 100,000 well that's right. absurd i think we can set that aside that it was never going to be if <laughs> you 10, set the bar
0: 000. low enough for anything right right,
1: right. <laughs> and amazing some folks in the press actually jumped on that and and accepted that framework though i don't think that has legs i think that'll die in the light of day today and so then there's the question of the percentage you know a, a 2 point increase isn't nothing but it's close to it i i will say i would have been surprised i was talking with someone about this uh yesterday um before the polls closed about what i expected and the point i made then was i don't i don't want to minimize that effort and i don't want to minimize the fact that there is real discontent with the president specifically around gaza but also around other issues all of that is true but the reality is, what we see in the poll, and what I believe those results reflected yesterday, is that the people who have the strongest discontent within the Democratic coalition are also the, what we call the lowest propensity voters. They're the people who um, didn't vote in 2022. A large number of them didn't even vote in 2000. You know, New York Times did a great job with their polls last year at the end of the year, Nate Cohn took all of the survey data from the year and he compiled it all together so he had a big enough data set to look at more granular universes of voters. And that's what he found. is It's really when you isolate the people who didn't vote in 2020 and 2022, those are the people who generically identify as Democrats but aren't voting for Biden now. Those are the uncommitted folks. So the idea that they would have come out in big numbers in this primary election was a little bit silly to begin with. They might not even come out in the general election. So, yeah, I, I look at that 13 percent and I don't think it's surprising. I also don't think it says anything about the president's vulnerabilities that we didn't already know. Yeah.
0: What I will say is as a as a Jew and a strong Israel supporter, I, I would like to be able to sort of be confident that there will be a commensurate um, increase in support for Biden among Jewish donors and voters to offset, you know, any actual real general election issues in, in Michigan or anywhere else. But I don't know. I mean, that doesn't, you know, there was, a, it was I think it was Siena, so maybe, you know, someone at a poll the other day that, like, actually showed that the majority of Jewish voters were supporting Trump. And What do you make of that? I mean, how much better could Biden possibly be on this issue?
1: Yeah, I, and I don't I, 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 I don't know that I by that. I, a, a lot of the polling that we're seeing now, and I don't want to become a polling truth or a crosstab truth, or <laughs> as they say, or a poll unskewed. I, I didn't, I didn't know that term exists, but I like it. It's it's, I, I liked it for a minute. Now I'm now I'm sensitive about it. Every time I criticize a poll, because I think there's value in every poll, but you have to view it in context and you have to be cautious about outliers and small sample sizes. I mean, I think what we've seen from results actual election results doesn't line up with what we're seeing uh in the poll. you look at the swazi victor and i know swazi is not biden and he ran in many ways away from biden but the notion that uh jewish voters would be overwhelmingly supporting donald trump at this point is hard for me this well you know another interesting thing about this to me to the point you brought up of the sort of potential offset right for the president um in terms of getting stronger support uh, from Jewish voters in general. I think that has been lacking from this conversation. There have been folks on the side of this sort of uncommitted side who have been arguing that the president is um, is going to lose this race if he doesn't listen to them. And for me, not making a judgment in one way or another about the merits of, of their arguments... What they're not considering is what would happen and what support, electoral support, would he lose if the president did what they're asking him to do. Right. And come out and, you know, not just condemn Israel, but act to stop them. Um, it, it, that wouldn't happen in a vacuum. It's it, it's he might gain support from these voters who, you know, again, are overwhelmingly low overwhelmingly low propensity voters right but there certainly would be a pretty large share of the electorate he would lose and so i only bring that up because this has become a popular argument the moment is to suggest that what he's doing as they would say is both morally wrong and tactically stupid well people can argue about the first part but the second part um it's hard to argue that um there's a tactical benefit to him uh, going along with what, so
0: um, so does that lead to them? a larger argument that um, everyone is underestimating Team Biden in the sense of you know there's every idiot like me out there with a podcast now or a column or a blog or something right so everyone has to have an opinion about everything and everyone likes to sort of believe they're smarter than everyone else but you know to your point while there's all this angst about you know, Arab American turnout in Michigan and the impact on Biden, you know, ultimately it's a trade-off. And in the trade-off, you're probably trading away low propensity voters for high propensity voters, which is the logical thing to do. And team Biden, I would imagine, can say, we won in 20. We won in the midterms no one expected. We won, you know, every kind of special election in 23. We keep consistently winning. We know what we're doing. Shut the fuck up. Um, Do you give, how much credence do you give to that?
1: Yeah, I, I give a fair amount of credence to that. And, and, and yeah, you, you, I, I think it's funny that you described yourself as an idiot with a podcast, as someone who's managed a successful campaign or two, but, um, <laughs> but I'll go with it. Uh, I, you know, I, there, there's a long history of uh, pundits and, and even political operatives underestimating the president. And I don't mean to offer that as a soundbite, but when you think about, let's just go back to 2020, 2019, 2020, when you think about the Democratic primary, to me, that was uh, another example of exactly what we're seeing now happening, just in a different framework, where the Biden campaign months before Iowa and New Hampshire said, this is how we're going to win the primary. You know, we're going to take this path. We're not going to do well in Iowa and New Hampshire. We're going to barely contest it. But then when we get to South Carolina and Nevada, states that reflect the diversity of the Democratic Party, we're going to win. We're going to do well. That's how we're going to win the nomination. And when they offered that strategy, the media, political pundits, consultants all looked at that and seemed to say, yeah, that makes sense. And then suddenly Iowa comes and he does what he said he would do. He loses there. And it was an outright panic. And then New Hampshire comes and people are talking about what a disaster uh, and then the rest of the script went exactly as uh, the president's campaign said it was going yep. to go Yep. any wins. And <laughs> it's just this constant, you know, there are numerous examples before and since that are similar. And so I give them credit them, meaning the Biden team because they don't chase their tails. They're not chasing the story of the day. They're just quietly doing their work and, they believe that they have a strategy that is going to win them this election. I don't believe they are in denial of the work that they have ahead of them. I don't believe they look at this and say they're going to win easily. Um, but the panic that is happening now—it's—it's it's another Ross Duthich story. Yesterday, there's you know uh, Ezra Klein's a week ago. Yep. Uh, They just keep coming, talking about how he should drop out and these fantastical scenarios, how we're going to, in late August, replace him at the Democratic Convention and everyone's going to be cool with that. Um, They're absurd. Um, But in a way, I get it. uh, The threat that Trump poses to people who are paying attention, which is not a whole lot of people at the moment, um, I think is, is leading to this type of overreaction. People are scared. They're worried about what would happen. And then they see the polls and they see that the polling doesn't look good right now. And there's a little bit of a panic. And
0: and look, Ezra Klein's a smart guy and I'm sure it's a perfectly nice guy. But at the end of the day, he's a human being with an ego. And he said something that now has us talking about him a week later, right? And so a lot of this is also people saying things to feed their own need for attention and validation Um, as much as anything else. The one thing, so I agree with everything you just said, but the one part that I still kind of can't quite wrap my head around is like, yes, uh, I think team Biden has basically called it right consistently, but they still keep sort of hinting like, well, once we really start campaigning and getting our message out there, things will change. But what message is that, right? It's like, is there some secret message that, like, you guys all know about, but the public doesn't? That's all of a sudden, oh, right, right, right. Okay, now I'm for this guy. Like, <laughs> what is it?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, it's a fair point. I think for them, you know, one of my least favorite frameworks that's also incredibly popular in the press and the, um, among the pundits is if the election were to happen today, right? We, that's what we love to talk about. And really, that's the foundational element of all of these Sure doom and gloom takes is Biden's losing. And if the election happened today, he would lose. Well, it's a counterfactual that is so absurd because if the election were ha- was happening today he would have been doing the work for the months up to this (laughs) point and the numbers would look very different. And also you sound like
0: surprise today's election day.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. If it just suddenly we, we all had to go out and vote and polling would look different. The reality is one of the reasons why polling doesn't look good for him at this point is because yeah, there are a lot of people in the democratic party and a lot of independents who don't love the idea of having Uh, a Biden-Trump rematch. They are concerned about his age. They would rather have someone different, right? If someone asks you, do do you want ice cream? There's so many different flavors of ice cream. If they say you have to have this flavor of ice cream and then they'll say, yeah, okay, it's ice cream. I'll take it, but I'd prefer this other flavor. That's what we're experiencing now in the polls. And so they, they aren't reflecting the dynamic of if the election were going to happen today. So I think the Biden team, to their credit, are taking the longer view approach to this, which is their goal is not to be ahead today. It is to be ahead when all the votes are counted. And if he is out there every day as candidate Biden, every minute, it's not necessarily to their benefit. In a lot of ways, they've decided that Trump needs to be out in front. The reason that Biden, or at least one of the big reasons that he won in 2020 was more that people were voting against Trump rather than for Joe Biden. right? And that's not something, you know, from an ego perspective, I think anyone would like. Um, it's not the traditional mold for a president, but it's where we are at this moment in time. And it's, it's really how he framed his own candidacy, candidacy right? He was right. the guy who was going to stop Trump and remove him as a threat, and then he would move on. And a lot of people thought that meant it would be a one-term sort of deal. Trump came back, Biden came back, and here we are. So right. this is probably it. So, yeah, in terms of the question about the message, it's it's interesting, right? Because, um, you know, as the economy gets better, and it, it clearly is getting better, the president is not yet getting credit for it, or he's not seeing the sort of boost in the polls yeah. that generally, generally follow economic indicators. You know, it's funny... Because two years ago, four years ago, New York Times put out an interesting graphic on this, but others did interesting research, too, where they showed how the generic ballot polling was really tied to the price of gas as if nothing else mattered. And in reality, that's it's not that simple. Uh, And so from a messaging perspective, yeah, I do think you need to see him out there talking about the economy more. You're seeing him go to the border this week, maybe today, I don't even know when that's happening, but that's happening um, very soon. Obviously, having a strong message on immigration is going to be important. I think you're going to see more of that. But again, a lot of that is going to be focused on lifting up Republican extremism and dysfunction uh, as the message. And again, generally, I look at that and I would say, look, we, we need to give people a reason to vote for us rather than to vote against the other guys. This might be the exception. Right.
0: So let me throw two totally untested theories at you based on everything you just said. So the first one is that we just don't really like our vice presidents. And so as a result, even when they do become president, we're like never that happy about it. I think nine out of the 12 that have become president did not end up getting a second term, if you think about it. Um, So Biden at least might lose this election, right? Al Gore was thoroughly rejected, George A.W. Bush lost, Um, Ford lost, Nixon won in 68, but he lost right after being vice president in 60. LBJ had to not run again, Truman barely beat Dewey and so on. And so, you know, Biden, especially because he at least gave voters the impression that he was just gonna come in there to take out Trump, bring things back to normal, step aside, even more so may have created this expectation. But even if he hadn't, if he just a normal, hey, of course I'm gonna be president for as long as I can. Um, We just don't want it. And like any time, that you have effectively a third term through the continuation of vice president, although this one was interrupted by Trump in the middle. You almost have to assume there's just not going to be a fourth.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, 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 you're right, and certainly that's the, the the precedent is there. I think, you know, the, the the challenge with that frame of analysis is we've broken a lot of precedent in the last, you know, well since Trump came down that that golden escalator so to speak but um you know they've been more challenged i think obviously trump has broken a lot of political analysis and i think the dobbs decision has also um made a lot of past precedent be not quite as useful you know the reality is the dynamic that you're referring to is certainly reflected in in the president's approval ratings as being you know now i think the lowest of any incumbent president in recent history at this moment in his presidency. And generally that would mean that he should lose by a landslide. Right. But he's running against another anomaly um, in this era of both polarization. But again, this post Dobbs environment, um, you are seeing some weird things happen electorally where past precedents don't work quite as well. And so I'm not sure that type of precedent is relevant here. All that useful. Yeah. So so then then
0: theory number 2 actually now 3 to throw you um, which would just be that maybe we're entering a term of one-term world of one-term executives in general, right? So, you know, let's say that Biden does his election, he'd be the second president in a row to be a one-termer, but like I think that's, you know, to a certain extent true across the executive branch because people are just unhappy. Like I, I live in, in New York City and Eric Adams is at in the last Quinnipiac poll, 28%. That's the lowest approval rating of any mayor in New York City history that's been recorded. Um, and he's a disaster. But at the same time, is he more than a disaster of Bill de Blasio? Not not by much, right? But maybe we live in a world where between, you know, all of the anxiety that social and unhappiness that social media produces and all of the fear of sort of multiple existential risks from... You know, nukes to climate to pandemic to you know all of the vitriol and everything else. Just anyone, if you win power these days, um, is going to automatically be unpopular and has a good shot of not retaining power.
1: Yeah, it's a super interesting question, and I don't know that I know the answer to this because I, I, twenty twenty two should have looked a lot different from that from that perspective. In that you had, you know, quote, the fundamentals that we talk about that dictate electoral performance, meaning inflation was incredibly high. You had the president uh, with historically low popularity ratings. You know, it's a midterm election. Democrats should have gotten wiped out like they did in 14 and 10 and and 94, Um, and they didn't. Uh, And at the same time, incumbents, to your point, governors, U.S. senators um, generically had, you know, there are some exceptions, but most of them have very low approval ratings, at least when you compare it to the historical context in terms of how how, um, especially governors generally poll. Um, A lot of very unpopular governors. But when you look at the election results, it was actually very status quo. Almost every incumbent Running for re-election in the Senate and in um, governorships, one. I think there was only one or two exceptions, and so it, 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 I, I don't know if it's these two countervailing forces that just butted heads and we just were left in the middle, or there's something else going on, right? Yeah, it's it, it, you know some of it is that dynamic that people will say, and this is not a new thing. You poll people about how they feel about Congress, and they say Congress, you know, Congress as an institution polls worse than just about anything right but then when you ask people about their member of congress they they have generally felt pretty good about them that less so now so there's some of that dynamic that um in the abstract people are upset with these institutions and with politics in general but they're still not inclined to put someone else in part of that might just be because they can't be troubled with the change they might not think much of their incumbent but they think even less of the challengers, and they generally hold a bo- very low opinion of of anyone who. Uh, do you think exists in Do you think
0: field. it's possible that that has extended to kind of right track, wrong track? So, for example, um, I got some data back last night on a poll we did in Illinois for some of the school meal work we do out of my foundation, and even though. Pritzker's, I mean, he was underwater, but not wildly underwater. Right track, wrong track was like 2067 for Illinois. Yeah. It was like, holy shit, this is bad. Um, and so do you think that's sort of just like people hate Congress, but love their member of Congress that we're sort of just like that now across the board, people are going to say they're unhappy with everything everywhere, but they may or may not go to the trouble of actually replacing the people in charge.
1: Yeah. Like including the economy, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> How people feel about the economy, it's awful. How do you feel about your personal financial situation? I'm doing pretty well. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, I, th- I think there's something right. to that. You know, we did an interesting poll a few months ago where we asked the right track, wrong track nationally, but then we asked the follow-up, which is the sort of thing where I'm kicking myself at, at that point because why haven't we done this before? The follow-up question was, well, who do you blame or who do you give credit? So if you said, I I think things are headed off on the wrong track, all right, well, who do you blame for this? And if I think things are on the right track, who do you, who do you give, to whom do you give credit? And what was interesting is when you sorted all that out nationally, not surprising, the poll result was overwhelmingly by like a three to one margin. People think things are headed off in the wrong direction. But when you ask, who do you blame? It's not, you know, we tend to think of this as, oh, it's just on the incumbent. So in this case, it's just all on Biden. And it wasn't. It was actually, if you sort it out, it was about 50-50, which becomes a very unsurprising result. <laughs> because it's suddenly then consistent with everything else we're seeing. Is that there's this polarization and there's a whole bunch of Democrats, a whole bunch of Republicans. But in the end, the one thing they share in common is they're all generally unhappy. Um, but it wasn't something that either side really would bear the brunt of. Um, because you just have this polarization in terms of who everyone thinks is to blame. And independents certainly look more like the party out of power. That is something that we see consistently. Right. So now right. independents look more like Republicans. When Trump was in, independents look more like Democrats. We're right. still seeing that.
0: Yeah, as an independent, I can verify that we're always unhappy with whoever
1: in charge. <laughs> um,
0: so theory three, so you were talking about the Swazi race earlier and immigration and you know, since it was here in New York, I got to see a decent amount of the coverage um, around the race. And the thing that Swazi, I think, did really well was distance himself from Biden on immigration, right, and really was able to sort of pound away on it enough that it doesn't didn't seem like, and I think the math proved this, that the voters punished him for Biden's immigration failures, and that was enough for him to— prevail. So let me throw a theory at you that I'm, I literally just started thinking about this morning so it is as nascent as it can be. Um, and it's more of a substantive policy theory than a political theory but I think it can be applied to, to both which is so the economy desperately needs more workers. We can't grow without it. Americans for a wide variety of reasons whether it's sort of education or class or health or laziness or age can't or won't do a lot of these jobs millions or probably tens of millions of people all over the world want to come to the US to work. We can't control the borders anyway, so they're getting in whether we like it or not. And yeah, I would argue that our asylum policy needs to be changed, but you know, either way, it's not like people aren't coming in. And then other than sort of at least the crime caused by migrants, which I can't tell in New York if that's a real thing or just a New York Post sort of spectacular um, and that the actual data is, is the same as it's always been why wouldn't we just say, just accept that they're here, don't provide them with a the right to shelter, don't provide them with any services that a non citizen is entitled to, and let the economy absorb them, just like it has historically for hundreds of years? Um, and then we benefit from growth and, and increased tax revenue and everything else. So basically, feels like what's ultimately a benefit to the economy and something that the market, a problem the market can effectively handle. Right? Because if, if you get to a point where there aren't enough jobs left in New York City for new migrants, they'll move to Iowa or if work in a meatpacking plant or whatever it is. Right? Um, we've kind of created a problem that, in many ways, didn't need to exist. And if you had just left it alone, would have actually been a benefit to the country.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting message and one that I'm inclined to like. I, you know, the Republican successes in terms of using immigration as a, as a something to bludgeon Democrats with, has been very fear-based, which is not surprising. That's generally where they've been successful in general is appealing to people's gut instincts and their fears. And so that all this talk of a border crisis, I think has generally been successful, right? We hear about the caravans, the scary caravans coming to the border, generally as we get deeper into election season. Um, and, and you're right, it, You know, it didn't work in New York 3, it didn't work in the Swazi race. You know, Part of that, I think, and it's impossible to parse this out entirely, was Republicans shot themselves in the foot by agreeing with Democrats uh, in the Senate on a, a legislative package and then torpedoing it when Trump said he didn't want them to give Democrats the win, and he didn't want to lose the issue to run against uh, Biden on. But you know it's interesting when you look at the polling and talking to Mike Bosian, who did the polling for for Swazi campaign. I think they did a really good job there. Their polling showed that Tom Swazi, to your point, had already neutralized the issue even before, because that blow up was what a week, a week and a half. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a hard time
0: believing that the voters are so attuned to the inner workings of the U.S. Senate legislative process. No. That that's what did it.
1: <laughs> well, the, the, the only argument that I would make, and I've made this argument before, is that. If anyone was attuned, it's people are voting in a special election in February. But if you hope that's going to work in a presidential election, that's going to have turnout, you know, three or four times what we saw in that special, you know, that you, you, you can keep hoping it's not going to happen. So, you know, to your point, I think Democrats generally, we try to make these more dense arguments and appeal to someone's head. We haven't had a coherent message on immigration for a long time now. I think we struggle with it. Uh, and I think your sort of real politic approach to this is appealing because certainly it matches with a lot of people's lived experience, which is, you know, this isn't a hypothetical. We, we lived with the Trump immigration policy and we saw the impact that it had on the economy. We saw the impact that it had a, on a lot of industries. Um, and and yeah, we I have hundreds of, of data
0: of the economy absorbing immigrants. And, you know, like part, part of where, like, if Eric Adams blames his 28% on the migrant crisis, and I think if he has something to blame, it's this right to shelter in New York that created a cost and an issue for the city that otherwise, honestly, if you had just ignored it, probably would have been a net plus for us.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I agree. And he certainly, it, it, Mayor Adams has lost the messaging war on this one by, I think, leaning into and validating the, uh, Republican arguments yeah. rather than just noting that, you know, I think that attitude that people like there, that's we're New York and we're a city of what, 9 million people, right. and we can do hard things. And this, in terms of the grand scale of things that New York has done is not very hard. We'll figure this out. Um, but he, he leaned in and to and validated the Republican arguments, which strikes me as a weird political strategy, as if, people were going to give him credit as the executive for the city um, for just as he says, being dealt a, a tough hand. Um, that's that strategy. Certainly.
0: is Yeah. He, he's sort of the master at kind of going 70% of the way with something that could potentially be a risky, but innovative strategy, but then pulling back. Yep. And so as a result, he makes all of his core supporters mad and doesn't actually achieve the the trick that you would have achieved, right? Like the, the, the trick <laughs> here would have been lose, to say, right, like, <laughs> all right, I'm not doing, I don't care if there's a right to shelter, I'm not doing it, right? Too fucking bad. And, you know, yeah, the left would have gone crazy and sued him and everything else, but like, then he would have had sort of a cohesive message and he also wouldn't have had a massive budget crisis. Um, but yeah, he's, he's sort of the, the king of doing that. All right, so l- last question, which is, you know, if there's one thing that view that you think is going to happen that's a little unconventional and not what other people are saying uh, in the next sort of, you know, 10 months, what is that?
1: Oh, gosh, I feel like the conventional wisdom is so wrong all the time. <laughs> so maybe that's the right <laughs> answer. Right. I I, I I think a lot of it's what we've touched on. Right. That I think. um it's just all the takes the, the overreaction we're seeing and the panic from Democrats that oh no this is actually a close race like guess what these are all going to be close races for a while it's just the nature of things and so I I think a lot of those takes are going to look stupid I do think people are still underestimating the impact that the Dobbs decision had and will have mm-hmm. in these races it's becoming yep. more salient you're seeing the horror stories uh, you know the story of of the, the few thousand uh rape victims in texas already who have been forced to carry the children of the rapist to term these stories are getting out people are hearing it we saw the story in alabama on in vitro fertilization and republicans having no answer for that i think we're forgetting that lesson again already we've already done i think twice since Dobbs that this issue is going to have a huge impact so yeah i mean that's not the hottest take but I do think it's at least slightly contrarian to the conventional wisdom now that seems to be that Biden and Democrats are doomed. I think you're going to see those elements reemerge as we get into the summer. Yeah, And yeah, it, it, I, I kind of love that, that, that
0: the contrarian take is that the conventional wisdom is right. <laughs> uh, that, that's fantastic. Um, Tom, how do people follow your work if they want to kind of keep up with you?
1: I guess on Twitter, or yeah. X is the easiest way at Um you know, we, I, 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 I do a lot of just sort of ad hoc analysis there. And then at TargetSmart.com, we'll do some more well-thought-out analysis that's, you know, more than 280 characters. <laughs>
0: Here we go. Tom Binder, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Firewall is recorded at my bookstore, P&T Netware, located at 180 Orchard Street on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We'd love to hear from you with questions, feedbacks, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley@firewall.media at or find me on LinkedIn. And to keep up with what's on my mind and my latest writing, please follow my new substack at bradleytush.substack.com. Thanks again for listening.